Welcome to the U.S.-Mex Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S.-Mex fellow and Ph.D. candidate in sociology at UC Irvine, Daniel Millan, discusses household instability and the academic performance of Latino children of immigrants. Great. Thanks for the intro and thanks, Abigail, for being here. So I'm gonna. So what I'm trying to do in this presentation is kind of give a little bit of an overview of my work or of my research agenda. So it might seem a little bit disjointed, and this is exactly kind of like the feedback that I'm looking for since I'm doing a three-article dissertation. I'm also working on a few collaborative projects, and so I think right now the place that I am in is that you know trying to figure out like what's next, right? Like after doing these articles, like what what can I do? What, what makes sense uh, for future projects? So really, this is kind of like my question guiding me through this presentation. So my overview here is that I'm interested really in the expenses of children that belong to mixed-status immigrant families. So we usually define mixed status families as families that contain at least one undocumented individual, typically a parent. And so you, you see, like these families are about, or children in these types of families are about 8% of all K through 12 grade students. So it's a, it's a substantial number. And we really don't understand much about what happens in these households, what parents experience, but also what children experience. So Laura Enriquez is one of my mentors. And she's really one of the few scholars that's really done work on mixed status families. And Castaneda is coming out with a book this winter, I think, status families along the U.S.-Mexico border. So these are like some of the very few studies that actually focus specifically on what goes on in mixed status families, right? And so really the question here is like, if you have an undocumented parent, what are your experiences in education? What are your experiences just growing up in a mixed status family? but also really centering like the experiences of parents, right? So this is kind of where my research I think is taking me now is to look at the family a little bit more holistically but here in this presentation I'm gonna first start with looking at families in general and then end with kind of putting forth framework for combining kind of two approaches right that I take in my in my work and so a lot of the work in family literature has because there's such a gap right in understanding the experiences of status families much of the sociological family literature doesn't include studies that really focus, right, and analyze what goes on in mixed status families, right? So really, like, what I'm trying to do is do a little bit of both in this presentation, but also kind of set myself up for future work. Uh, so that's kind of like the feedback that I'm requesting today is, like, is merging, is how I sort of conceptualize, right, merging family and immigrant legality theories convincing. And so I'll, I'll kind of go through both theories. So that's why it might seem a little bit disjointed. So I'll start with family theories and, and the presentation on immigrant illegality theories. And another kind of broad question for you all is like, what do, we, what do we need to learn about the experiences of members in mixed status families, right? So a lot of us are working directly with undocumented families or undocumented people. And so I'm kind of trying to draw from your experience, right? Like, what are the things that you feel we should really focus on, right? And is, is this something that, that I can do with this framework? And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is on is family separation, right? So when either forced separation or separation when an immigrant parent leaves a household for a range of reasons, right? Um, it can either be like divorce, it could be because the, the parents just split up uh, for other reasons. And really this has been like a focus of the literature, right, on Latina, Latino immigrant families uh, looking, especially mixed status families, like what happens when an immigrant parent is either detained or deported and the consequences of, the, of that detention or deportation on 
both children, but also the parent who experiences detention and deportation, right? So this is this was kind of really like the why I got into this work. So Rafael mentioned that I've done some work on detention. So I've interviewed immigrants in detention for the past five years now, six years now. And again, like I'm doing like this article dissertation. And so I'm trying to bring some of that work into right and at least represent it in, in future work or or make sense of it in a way that that is cohesive. So we also know a lot about the deportability risk, right? So if you have an undocumented parent, they're much more likely to experience some type of detention or deportation. It varies by race, ethnicity, by lo- by local context, and by whether or not like the parent maybe has like a criminal record or has an encounter with police, right? So there's like a range of reasons why somebody might experience detention or deportation. Uh, so this really has been like the focus, right, of, of, of some of the work on mixed status families, like what happens when a parent is at either at risk and like what are those consequences or what happens when a parent is actually detained or deported right and so here i'm focusing on the negative impacts on member separation and really centering the experiences of children so what happens to children's educational outcomes when they experience such a separation and so the framework i'm using to first understand families and what they look like how they operate and like what happens when instability occurs is by using an instability stress framework so this is this has been grounded um, in the sociological family literature And so the basic premise is that if a household experiences some sort of instability, and so you can imagine that a parent leaving the home because of detention or deportation, or a parent leaving the home because of divorce, or for whatever other reason, right? Incarceration could also be it. So these experiences have a negative effect on children's well-being and outcomes. So there's like a long literature in the family scholarship that that documents these processes, right, Of, of, of a child experiencing one or more types of instability and then focusing on okay like what are the, then the consequences on children's outcomes and well-being and for the most part if a child experiences a household transition like a parent leaves there are both emotional and material consequences so we know that children that belong to single parent households tend to perform lower on academic performance measures than children from two parent households they also have um, less like households with only a single parent only have one earner in the household, right? So there's lower socioeconomic status. And so, right, if you can kind of imagine, right, if there's two parents, but then now there's one, then there's kind of this cascade of consequences that affect the family as a whole, but also children. And it, it's also like one of the ways that inter, intergenerational inequality is perpetuated. So from what we understand, if you belong to a single parent household, your chances of achieving mobility or incorporation are kind of mediated by, by, by this, this fact. And so it's a, what's one of the ways that inequality has been perpetuated in the United States. We know now that single parenthood is a little bit more common than ever before. And so these are kind of the questions in the framework that's guiding this research, right? To first understand why household separation or parental separation might matter. What I, what, what I sought to do in my dissertation is to just have an account of what do families look like in the first place and what happens when any kind of instability occurs in a household? Like, what are those those consequences? So the way that I define household compositions is just the number of parents in the home and the types of extended relatives in the home. So I'm taking like a more holistic approach. So rather than just focusing on whether or not there's one or two parents, I'm looking at all possible members in the household. So I don't have it up here, but I'm also looking at whether or not there's siblings in the household, other relative, or other like non-relatives, right? And so. The question here for my first chapter 
has been on what do these families look like in the first place, right? So if we want to understand separation, then, I mean, I'll go into this a little bit uh, later on, but I think a lot of the literature kind of just assumes without empirically, like, having evidence behind like what do these families look like in the first place right on a national kind of representative level right so a lot of these studies on mixed status families we don't really have survey data right to explore what happens when separation occurs so i'm kind of trying to take the step back and just think about families start with this foundation of what do families look like and what happens when a parent leaves the household or a grandparent leaves the household right so capturing this type of this type of instability and explanations behind Latina, Latino household compositions. I'm sure we've probably heard a lot of these explanations before. So a lot of the characterizations tend to be a little bit stereotypical, but people frame household, Latina, Latino households as being protected from separation, as being as holding like high familialism values, as relying on grandparents, right? So there's these notions about Latina, Latino immigrant families and how they work, and they tend to be based on cultural explanation. So not necessarily like empirical evidence um, based on, well, what do they actually look like and what factors account for whether or not a child lives in a single-parent household or lives with extended relatives like aunts, uncles, and so forth. And I define, so I'm going to show a few slides where it shows like vertical, horizontal, and mixed. So I define vertical households as households with a grand, one or more grandparents, Horizontal are aunts and uncles, and mix is a combination of both vertical and horizontal members. So that's just uh, one definition of household compositions. All right, so I'm trying to like really question this cultural framework that, in a way, characterizes families as tight-knit, maybe protected from separation, but as I mentioned earlier, right, Latina, Latino immigrant families are also in the literature and just depicted overall as at risk of experiencing separation because of immigration laws and policies, right? So I think, or my work is really trying to challenge this perspective and provide like a, an alternative explanation behind why households might look the, like the way they look. So it might be true that households tend not to be, you know, single parent households and tend to rely on um, extended relatives, but what I'm trying to figure out is like the reasons why, right, besides cultural explanations. And so what I do in the first chapter is um, really look at single parent households and also extended households, like I mentioned earlier. So what we know about single parent households, we know there's like a broader of reasons why um, there are more and more children spending some time in their childhood in a single parent household. One of them has been a delay in marriage, like people are waiting longer to get married. There's also like an increasing prevalence of cohabitating households, so households where parents never get married. Um, and we know that usually, there's a few theories behind this, but usually if, if, if a couple is cohabitating, there tends to be less commitment or like the, the risk right, of separating is, is a little bit lower or like the cost of separation is a little bit lower. Um, so it becomes a little more common. And we also know that socioeconomic status is one of the factors behind explaining whether or not a child might experience single parenthood. So more or less, uh, children that belong to lower SES households are more likely to experience separation than children from higher SES households. And this is tied to like parents' education, parents' income. So again, there's like a wide range of factors why we see such a prevalence of single parent households. And I think in the United States, there's about, latest stat is that about 20% of um, children overall are likely to experience single parenthood 
at one point in their childhood, right? So it's it's a prevalent thing, and I'm sure we've all heard. Sometimes this this has been framed as a crisis, and like why are there so many single parent households and all these other things, right? But what I'm really interested here is to kind of unpack again these cultural perspectives that depict Latina Latino immigrant households as protected from separation, and kind of again go back to a drawing board. And just describe and characterize these households just in the onset and, and think about how race, ethnicity, and immigrant generation plays a role, right? So again, I'm kind of just providing a picture of what do these households look like in the first place before we can understand the effects of separation. And another literature, right, has been on the focus on alternative household arrangements, so people or children that are living with grandparents, aunts, and uncles. And there's similar, or there's another range of explanations in terms of why a child might live with a grandparent. One of these has been like the increasing importance of ties with the grandparents. And so grandparents can provide like emotional support, but also childcare. They can help a parent out. They might be living in a household because they can't afford to live on their own and so forth, right? There's also like this idea behind reciprocity, right? Like grandparents want to give back, but also parents want to give back to a child's grandparents. And this is why we see like an increase in the prevalence of extended households. And SES might also be tied to this, right? So more or less, if a household has lower SES, you can expect that they're more likely to have an extended relative in the household. And there's a kind of like a broader literature for, from the Latina Latino immigrant um, literature on explaining extended household arrangements, but it tends to focus on first generation um, immigrants. So a lot of the work has been done like in the 90s, early 2000s as to network migration. So a lot of times people will live with extended relatives because they have to, right? Like they come to the United States and that's the only person that they can find housing with. And so there's kind of that literature, but it doesn't necessarily focus on children of immigrants or households with young children. So I'm also kind of adding to this literature by, or adding to this gap in literature by explicitly focusing on households that have children who are in K to fifth grade. And again, trying to explore differences by race in the ethnicity and immigrant generation to really investigate like what are the factors behind whether or not uh, a child lives either with a single parent and or with extended relatives. Okay, so the methods from the first and second chapter are, I'm using um, a longitudinal data set, the early childhood longitudinal study, the 2011 cohort. So this data set is representative of children who attended kindergarten in the 2010-2011 academic year. It includes household rosters, so the way the, um, the data was collected is that if a parent was interviewed, then we have a sense of every single person in the household. So this has become an ideal data set because it includes information on all household members, and so then I can um, explore and answer my research questions, right? Like, what are what is the likelihood of a child, a, a Latino children immigrant living in a single parent household or living with extended relatives? So it's one of the few data sets that, that includes kind of the study design and a lot of the previous work on Latino, Latino children of immigrants has included uh, non-representative data. So like maybe LA samples or, you know, it's just smaller subsets. So in chapter one, um, the goal is to predict the likelihood of children belonging to a single parent household in an extended household by including a range of factors that may, that may or may not be associated with membership. And in chapter two, I'm analyzing the role of household composition and transitions on children's math and reading scores from K to fifth, fifth grade. So one of the huge limitations of this data set and many, many data sets um, is that they don't include measures of parents' legal status. So that's one of the reasons why I 
don't have this up there, right? Because there, there's nothing that captures whether or not a parent is undocumented. And so I can't necessarily answer the question of whether legal status is also associated with separation or the likelihood of a child belonging to a single parent or extended household. So this might be kind of like something for future work, but I just wanted to throw that out there because you might be wondering, well, why not also investigate legal status? So just, I always kind of try to avoid including huge tables. So I'm just going to point out, like just only focus on the, the stuff that's boxed. So I'm just pointing out here using the, the sample. So I have a sample of over 9,000 children and this longitudinal representative data set. And I broke it up into white native-born white native-born children, white children immigrants, Latino native-born children, and Latino children immigrants. And children immigrants, I'm using children immigrants to represent children that are either second generation or 1.5 generation. And Latino native-born children are children that have parents, uh, one or two parents that were both born in the United States. The same with white native-born children and white children immigrants. So that's kind of the operation I'm using here. So instead of saying like 1.5 generation, second generation, and so on, I'm just collapsing children immigrants to include both 1.5 generation and second generation. And so you can see here in terms of single parenthood, it's much more common among Latino native born children with a relatively high amount of children belonging to a single parent household. Um, so about 30%. So in this chapter, I'm using only a cross-sectional approach. I'm looking at household composition in the spring of first grade. And as you can see here, um, Latino children are against 16% belong to a single parent household. But there's no significant difference between that and native or in white native born children. So overall, single parenthood tends to be a little bit more prevalent among Latino native born children. And in terms of extended household membership, we see that it's just overall more common among Latino both Latino native-born children and Latino children of immigrants, which goes in line a little bit with the literature, right, in terms of these explanations be behind why households look the way they look like. But what I'm doing again here is, right, exploring other factors, right, beyond just saying, okay, this is the assumption behind households. Like, these are the things that are, might be associated with whether or not children are likely to belong to a single parent household or an extended household. There is significant, or another interesting point that I want to Another fact that I want to point out is that white children of immigrants and white native-born children don't differ on either their likelihood, they differ on their likelihood to belong to a single parent household, but they don't differ in their likelihood to belong to an extended household. Um, so I'm using these comparison groups to, again, like really test the fact of both race ethnicity and immigrant generation. So unlike previous conceptions, it may not just be like immigrate like immigrant generation that matters, right? Like there must be like other factors. So that's why I include um, comparison groups. And white native born children are the reference group in models. So again, avoiding tables. So I just tested different models and I'm just gonna focus on the fourth model, which includes all of the variables, including interactions between race ethnicity and SES, since we know that it, SES varies on whether or not a child is Latina, Latino, or a child of immigrant. And I'm also controlling for like school location as a proxy for just geographical location in the United States, SES, the number of children, gender, and so forth. So I just want you to focus on the fourth model. And so what I found in terms, so this, this table is showing the likelihood of a child belonging to a single parent household with white native born children as the reference group. And I'm using odd ratios in bold. So Latino native born children are significantly 1.4 times more likely to belong to a single parent household than white native born children and Latino children immigrants are 0.29 times less likely. So again, kind of confirming 
um, what we suspected in the literature, but using um, more empirical evidence, representative data. And another thing that's significant is SES, right? So the higher SES, the lower likelihood that a child will belong to a single parent household. Again, consistent with the literature and what we know about single parent households. What is SES? So socioeconomic status. And it's just a composite of parents' um, education, employment, household income. So just overall, like, right, this table is showing what we know in the literature, but in a way where we can understand and piece it together, like what is the story behind whether or not a child lives in a single parent. So I did the same, so I ran a log logistic regression model predicting now the membership in an extended household. So again, whether or not a child lives with a grandparent, aunt, uncle, so forth. So I just want you to focus again on model four. So here I found that, so again, like controlling for SES, school location, found that Latino native born children are significantly 2.2 times more likely to live with any extended relative and Latino children Americans are 2.6 times more likely. So this is more than twice as likely to live in an extended household than white native born children. And SES also becomes significant. So the, the higher SES in household, the less likely that a child is, is gonna be living with an extended relative. And SES interactions were also significant, right? So the, all of these things and these factors are telling us a story about what makes it likely that a child will live in with an extended household. And interestingly, I found that if a child belongs to a single parent household or lives with a single parent, they're also more likely, so three times more likely to also live with an extended relative. So some of the literature that explains this is um, literature on like living with grandparents. So one of the strategies that, that households, that parents take on is if they split up or if they're single, they tend to cohabit or co-reside with a grandparent, um, again, to help each other out, to help the child out. And so this becomes apparent in this model, right? So just overall, to quickly summarize, what I did in chapter one was paint a picture of what households look like and then take a more empirical approach behind what factors can help us explain whether or not a child lives with a single parent or with extended relatives. Something that hasn't really been done in the literature because, again, most of what we know about households tends to frame, tends to use a cultural framework. So simply saying that we assume that these households look like this without exploring representative data or without exploring these such factors like SES or SES interactions. So I found just overall significant results. All right, um, so hopefully I convinced you in terms of why we need to use like representative data and like test likelihood of rights, likelihood behind household positions. And now the, the focus of the second chapter, which is very much still a work in progress, I'm only gonna present some preliminary findings, is on, I set forth what families look like and now I'm gonna test like household compositions and transitions. So again, whether or not a parent leaves the household, whether extended parents leave the household, and their overall impact on children's academic performance. And just to remind you all, from what we generally know is that if parents or if, ch if children experience a transition, they're more likely to perform lower than children that don't. And children and single parent households tend to perform lower as well. And in terms of living with, living with an extended relative, the literature is really unclear. A lot of it just depends on outcome, depends on age group, race, ethnicity. So most of the studies that have looked at outcomes have looked at when teenagers live with a grandparent and what that entails. So there's much less work on early childhood and living with a grandparent 
and even less work on living with a with an aunt or, or uncle, for example, or living in a mixed household. So living with both aunts, uncles, and grandparents. And again, since I found like discrepancies in terms of household composition between the four groups that I, I'm analyzing, um, this became my research question. Like, well, we know that we now understand we understand what these households look like. So what are the implications, right? So just some very preliminary state of doesn't look great on presentations, but I'm using um, put from Stata. So I just plotted 16, the first 16 children in the data set just to show that generally, so I'm using math in this presentation. So as the outcome, math IRT scores. So IRT stands for item response theory. So children are tested by given a series of questions that differ in difficulty based on whether or not they are getting right answers. So the more right answers, like if they get a few right answers, they'll get a certain like more difficult question if they get some wrong, some right. So it, it's it's supposed to adapt to children's like actual level and you can use it to compare across different grades. So generally higher math scores mean that the means that a children is performing better in math overall. And so you can see the trend right from zero represents kindergarten to fourth grade. Generally students perform a little bit better. And this is individual level data right here. So at the rate at which they the increase their math scores differs a little bit, right? So the slopes might be different, but generally the direction is that children tend to improve in math scores. And I find the same thing for reading. So this is kind of just, just a snapshot of some of the data. And so now breaking it up by average math scores from kindergarten to fourth grade by, so I don't include white children of immigrants in the second chapter. So I'm just comparing white native born children, Latino native born children, and Latino immigrant children. And this is just like their average scores plotted from K to fourth grade. And overall, white native-born children tend to score higher, like not controlling for anything else, just overall they tend to score higher and remain you know, scoring higher from K to fourth grade. Um, while Latino native-born children like behind and Latino children against are scoring like, the lowest, right? So one of the motivations behind this chapter is to really examine what, a little bit like in terms of what might lead to educational quality, right? And so the hypothesis would be like, maybe household compositions are one of the things that is shaping whether or not children are performing worse or better than their peers. But just to set it up, right? Just overall, white native poor children tend to perform better from K in K to fourth grade. And why this matters is like early childhood, from what we know. So, so, okay, so some of the pushback that I've gotten before is that, well, it's just early childhood, like it's just K to fourth grade, it doesn't really matter. But there's like a wide range of literature that shows that early origins and like how children perform early on really does matter and can become cum cumulative and, and spill over to like how they do in middle school. And there's even some work that even uses math and reading scores in K to fourth K to fifth grade to predict like high school high school outcomes and high school graduation. So if you take on like a life course perspective theory framework, it matters. Like this early period does matter, and whether or not students are lacking behind or not also matters. One of the models that I'll show here is so I'm predicting a math scores from K to fourth grade and looking at different extended household compositions. So this is just one example of the models that I'm running in the second chapter. And I'll just point out what's significant. So the way that I'm breaking it up is measuring household composition in kindergarten and then looking at whether or not a child experienced a trans one or more transitions from K to fourth grade. So if it's a non-disrupted vertical household, that means that a child lived with a grandparent in kindergarten and remained living with a grandparent throughout K to fourth grade. Same with like a horizontal, right? They live with aunts and uncles and remain in that household arrangement from K to fourth grade. 
And when we look at disrupted, so if you look at like, for example, disrupted vertical, that means that they started off living with a grandparent, but then the grandparent left at some point between K to fourth grade. So what these models are trying to assess is both the role of living with grandparents, but also the role of experiencing one or more transitions, either if an aunt leaves a household, if a grandparent leaves the household and so on. And I'm using, again, you know, native or white native born children as a reference group. So that's why they're not included in the table. But we still see like even controlling for SES, gender, number of siblings, Latino native born children and Latino children immigrants are still lagging behind in math scores from K to fourth grade. So this is just one snapshot. I'm still wrestling with the data. It's taken me a little longer. So I was hoping to have more results, but overall, what I'm finding... So mixed is a household where there's both vertical and horizontal members. So it would be a household with a grand, one or more grandparents. So just overall, what I'm finding so far is that there's generally like a negative association between household transitions and children's educational performance. And it matters in terms... Like I'm seeing some interesting things in terms of whether or not children live with extended house, extended relatives. So even here, like the only thing that was significant in this model was whether or not a child lived in a non-disrupted mixed household. So living with both aunts, uncles, and grandparents from K to fourth grade, children tend to score lower than otherwise, right? Which is an interesting finding because as, as I showed in the, in the descriptive statistics, like Latina, Latino children immigrants tend to belong to mixed households more, much more frequently than white native children. So what I'm also doing in this chapter is testing interactions between household composition, race, ethnicity, and immigrant generation interactions between SES and household composition. So it'll look a little bit more nuanced um, once I get it together. But it's just one snapshot of, of what I'm finding so far. Yeah, I just said that. Okay, testing interactions. And I'm taking an approach where I'm capturing the role of household composition by including all possible possible members in a, in a household. So a lot of the literature either only looks at single parenthood or extended household membership. And what I'm proposing is that we will, to really understand household compositions, we need to look at both, right? So some of the models that I'm working on include what both whether or not children live with a single parent and extended households and kind of like the, I did before, testing like disruptions from K to fourth grade. So this is still in the works, but I'm hoping to finish it up this quarter. And so now I'm transitioning over. Okay, so this is kind of like where it might seem like a little disjointed, but I'm transi transitioning over to just looking at, or talking about immigrant illegality and some of the wor other work that I've been doing these past five months. So just a brief overview of this framework. So an immigrant illegality framework allows us to understand how immigration laws and policies shape access to mobility, rights, and opportunities. So there's a lot of folks that have been doing work on on why immigration policies are consequential. Most of it has been US-based, but also there's been work on, in other contexts, like Abrego, for example, um, has done work with, with parents in El Salvador and then looked at like children that remain in El Salvador, parents that come to the United States. So it's a relatively new-ish framework. If by new, it's like 20 years old, but still that's relatively new. And this lens kind of un lets us understand how policies play out at the macro and micro level with a focus on how legality is constructed and in turn consequential. So really, I think the, the basic premise is that we want to understand how immigration laws and policies affect people on the ground, but also just overall in terms of like their life chances, their outcomes, the way they interact with society, with other folks. So this is the framework that I've been using for my non-dissertation work, but that I'm hoping to bring together for future work. And so I think the best way to show this framework is just to go through some examples from some of the collaborative work that I've been doing. So one of the papers that is should be out 
this month has been with Laura, Martha, Daisy. So we've been working on, on this project for a little while. And so one of the things that we know about illegality is that like immigration laws and policies might make it more difficult for an undocumented person to live in the United States, to like make a living, to just survive, to get by. But what we're also what we also understand is that illegality can be mediated by immigration laws and policies. So if you think about like, California as a relatively positive context, at least re- relatively recently, right? We have like driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants, in-state tuition for undocumented students, some limited healthcare access, which looks a lot different, right, in other state contexts, right? So this framework really allows us to also see not only how immigration laws are consequential and devastating but how they can be used, right, to, to make some kind of change, um, to alleviate some of these negative effects. And in our paper, Media and Illegality, we focus on how institutions are one of these like, actors, right, that, that can mediate illegality. So if you look at the example of the, of the UC system, which is what we analyze, the UC system has done quite a bit to mediate illegality in terms of educational both access for undocumented students, but also educational programming. So now we have over 2,000 students uh, who are undocumented in the UC system, whereas before, I think in 2008, 2009, there was less than 500. And we kind of trace this to both the implementation of like in-state tuition. So you may, may have heard of like AB 540, which provided like in-state tuition. And then the California Dream Act has provided in-state financial aid. We also like talk about DACA and how that's one of the mechanisms, right, that helps students not only access college, but remain in college because they can, they have access to a work permit and can work to kind of uh, pay for college, right? So again, just pointing this out to say that an illegality, immigrant illegality framework can be used in this in this way too, right? To kind of understand, well, what are things that institutions, that organizations can do to mediate these negative effects? Um, another example could be like cities declaring sanctuary status, which is more or less symbolic, but it's something, right, that, that a city can do. Um, or cities that have ID cards that don't require legal status, right? And can be used for people to just navigate and get around the city. So just one example of, of an illegality framework. Another example is from the work that I've been doing with Laura too. We just sent out this paper for review. We're trying to analyze here is relative experiences of illegality. So while immigration laws and policies might be consequential, it matters, right, who you are and like kind of the social locations that you occupy. So our basic argument here is that a lot of the a lot of the literature has framed undocumented immigrants immigrants as constantly in fear of experiencing detention or deportation. And we challenge this framework by saying that this is not always the case because if we look at the example of undocumented young adults in California, this is not really what's on their minds. So we're using like 500 some interviews, 300 something interviews, a survey to show what like, so if it's not a deportation that undocumented young adults are concerned with, then what is it? Uh, and we find that undocumented young adults are more worried about like employment prospects, whether or not DACA will go away. So this is another framework, another example of like how an illegality framework has been used in the work that I've been doing, where we look at like different aspects of a person's life and then think about, well, what are they really concerned about, right? If it's not detention or deportation, then what are the things that they are concerned about? Um, so just one example. Another that I, I presented this paper last quarter and the reading group in a couple other spaces here at UCSD. So this paper is now out under, under review. But what I'm doing here is looking at how illegality is constructed. Um, so if the premise is that 
undocumented students are in relatively protected spaces, right? They're maybe not fearing deportation. Well, then what are the things that they're worried about, right? Or what are the things that come on their mind? And one of the things that I found was immigration distraction. So I'll just read this quote really quickly. Those are at then immigration rate in the city where I'm from. And I was calling my mom because I know that she goes in that street to buy stuff for her tamales that she sells. But I remember I had bio after that, so I wasn't paying attention in class. That's all I was thinking, my mom, my mom. So Cassandra here kind of shows, right, like how one, like one of the ways that might, may, not see, may not be so obvious in terms of how illegality impacts the, the educational experiences of uh, undocumented immigrants. And here I'm, call, I'm calling them immigration distractions because in this moment, Cassandra wasn't necessarily worried about being deported herself or experiencing detention or deportation, but was worried about like what could happen to her mom, right? And this this worries or these worries spilled over to her to her academic life. So what I'm trying to do with this with this work is to show and demonstrate how illegality might be constructed in ways that aren't so obvious, because a lot of the work on the undocumented students has focused either on access, what makes it possible for students to actually go to college or not, or retention, can students afford to stay in college or not? And we know much less about. Well, what actually happens when students are in college and have to be in college for four to five years, right? And this is one of the things that I found. And just a plug for the project that we, we've been working on. So this website just recently launched last month. So I encourage you to check it out. So we go through a range. I've been part of the USIP project, so where we interviewed undocumented students across the UC system. So we interviewed over 150 students and also deployed a survey with over 500 students. So it's a pretty unique study because there's really no other, in the US at least, that has taken an entire university system and explored like what students are really going through. So we asked a broad range of questions and really sought to answer like, well, how do undocumented, undocumented students experience college um, now that they're in a relatively protected context, um, now that they're, they have access to like more, more sort of privileges right, at the university level. One of the things that we found was, of course, like distractions. So 79% of students reported being distracted in class, 74 lost study time, 62 did poorly in an exam, and 52 missed class. And all of these were a question based on like how, like does your immigration status, is it tied to any of these things? And they answered like, yes, agreed to it. Which is like a really high number, right, of, of, of students that are being academically impacted by their legal status, not, in, not so much in direct ways, like they're still in college, but indirect ways where they're experiencing distractions, for example, in the classroom. So I just encourage you to check out the website. We have a few reports on mental health, policy, a larger policy report. I think that that one's like 28 pages that just kind of summarizes the entire study. So I just really encourage you to check it out. So I wanted to read a little bit more about immigration distractions. So when, why they might impact undocumented students like educational performance. So I'll read Brian's quote. Fall term this year, school year, I was taking a writing class and I decided to do it on the theme of the class. It's a writing class and research. And I took the one that's based on mass incarceration, the criminalization of people. And I decided to focus on the criminalization and dehumanization of undocumented immigrants, right? When the elections started happening. So dealing with the real world news coming in and me trying to search out things that had to do with it, it was very hard for me. That was a time I couldn't get to do my work just because it was so emotionally draining. So Brian here is talking about the election of Trump, and this became one of the salient themes that, that people brought up, that just experiencing, like, even though they, they're worried about the implications, just thinking about it affected them negatively right in the classrooms. And this is kind of one example where Brian was grappling with both like topics and themes in class, and then having to think about the election at the same time, right, and those possible repercussions which had like a, a negative effect on his academic performance. And so I found out, thanks to the feedback fellows, I 
took the paper in a direction where I was looking more at how does illegality play out, how is it constructed, and the outcome, and like measuring also like outcomes or like taking note of outcomes. So I split the paper now into like how is it constructed and what are the sort of negative consequences of of this of this right uh, for students' academic performance. So this is just one example of how I broke it up. And overall, I'm finding that it's like it's essentially immigration distractions are negatively associated with academic performance. Sometimes students avoid going to class because they don't want to really hear about people talk about the election. They don't want to hear people discuss just immigration topics in general. So there's like a lot of kind of mental health issues that are related to this too. Okay, so I'll just wrap up. Um, but that's one of the papers that I've been working on. So kind of just bringing it back, right? So I presented two frameworks. One, the household instability stress framework, and now the, the immigrant illegality framework. So really what I'm hoping to do in, in the future is to tie both of these things to understand how mixed status families, how all members of mixed status families fare, right? So like I mentioned earlier, there's actually very little work or very little data, like survey data on mixed status families. So I'm thinking that this work is taking me, taking me into a, a more qualitative direction, but using the foundation that I've, that I've kind of gained from my dissertation to understand families and how families fare and also using the work that I've been doing in collaborative projects like the USEP project, right? So I'm trying to like bridge these two together to analyze the consequences of visibility and stress on the lives of members in mixed status families. Just some quick examples. We know that illegality can shape whether or not family members have access to employment opportunities, housing security, or healthcare, right? So I, I'm thinking that these are examples of some of the ways that instability and stress can manifest. Like if a parent loses their job, that can be an example of instability, right? That might, ne that might negatively affect their children's outcomes. But again, like this framework really hasn't been used. So I'm trying to make these two things work by the same time, like making myself feel better about having disjointed projects, maybe more or less, or multiple projects using like multiple methods. So I'm really just trying to bring it together and have a little bit like more cohesive that'll take me to like whatever next step after grad school. So another another consequence that might be right like legal we know that legal status shapes access to resources for parents and their children and undocumented immigrants tend to lack safety more or less undocumented families or mixed status families tend to be lower SES. But also, for example, going back to the example of a parent losing their, their employment, if you're undocumented, then you can't rely on unemployment benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And so really, like, why maybe my thesis is that if these, if these forms of instability and stress are happening in mixed status families, then they may be more, even more consequential than for non-mixed status families, right? Because parents are undocumented or because a child is undocumented, too. So really, that's where I'm with my work. I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast. The Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.